Horizon Hobby is one of the largest companies in the RC industry. They're involved in RC airplanes, helicopters, cars and boats, and own popular brands like E-Flight, Hangar 9 and Spectrum. Chances are, you've tried some of their products firsthand. Have you ever wondered how those products get developed, tested and released to the market? Joining us today is a true legend in the air modeling world, Ali Matinti. As a world-class pilot, field marketing manager and product developer for Horizon Hobby, Ali's fingerprints are on some of the most exciting releases, such as the E-Flight Vipers, the Hangar 9 Cargo Cab, and the iconic OV-10 Bronco. In this conversation, Ali gives us a behind-the-scenes look at how Horizon Hobby develops their products. He also dives into the newest release from Hangar 9, the Ermaki MB339, the first turbine jet airplane from the company. But that's not all. Ali also leads the Horizon Air Team, a group of about 100 awesome pilots they sponsor, and he's going to tell us what it takes to join this top-notch team. Beyond his role within Horizon Hobby, Ali's flying skills span the entire spectrum of the hobby, from jets to small foamies, from scale models to gliders. In our chat, he opens up about his latest favorite sports jet, the Elite Aerosports BDX. Whether you are new to RC or you are an experienced pilot, I think you will get a lot of insights and inspiration from this conversation with Ali Matinzi. I hope you enjoy it. All right, Ali. Thank you so much for taking the time and welcome to the Skybound RC podcast. Thanks for having me and no problem at all. Good to be here. I wanted to start by getting a better idea of your role at Hangar 9. You are currently a product developer at Hangar 9. Can you tell us what a product developer does? Sure. Yeah. Um, product developer is actually probably my secondary role at Horizon. Um, I have a, probably about three or four roles that I dabble in, but my main two are field marketing manager and then secondary is product developer. Um, currently, I'm the only full-time developer for Hangar 9. Um, and as far as what do I do and what does that involve, um, it varies depending on the different product developers we have i think around about oh, i think uh, say seven or eight full-time air product developers on the team um right now and their roles are adapted to their skill sets um with me being the only one on hangar nine um i i pretty much you know, say do it all um i go from the ideas basis um right the way through to design, testing, um, which is the development, um, the marketing side, so the videos, the photographs, and so forth um, for Hangar 9. And that's where I come in to play with the other brands, particularly like E-Flight, say. I help a lot on the testing side, um, the video, um, the marketing, the photographs, and so forth. I do, I wouldn't say, yeah, probably nearly all of the videos and so forth, anything flying right now. So on the Hangar 9 side of it, say, it's, it's, it's pretty much just me. I do all of that. When you and your team are working on a new airplane, uh, what are the main challenges to 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 get a new pre a new project from you know idea to release what are the, the main challenges what are what are things that people might not realize are are not that simple in the process yeah a lot i mean coming from my background of a retail aspect um to the manufacturing side i had some idea of what was involved but only a tip of the iceberg and um in that sense there's challenges that really still sort of um let's say surprise me anymore but i understand a lot of people don't acknowledge or understand fully what's going on is those that are to do with a big corporation like ourselves um 
well, so much to talk about. A smaller corporation, for instance, um, won't have the same sort of responsibilities we would in terms of licensing, in terms of um, profit cost, um, in terms of compliance testing, and all of these things sort of are interwoven together. So, I'll give you an example. You know, if I was just like say Ali Machinchi Models, and I wanted to go and make a Cessna one seven two, I'd go. You know what? I'm going to make a Cessna 172 and I think it's going to be a cool idea. I think it will sell enough to make, keep Alan Machinchi models happy. Let's go. Let's do it. Being Horizon Hobby, as, as, I, you know, as we are, as I represent, as I work for, um, we have to factor in licensing. You know, Textron is, uh, sorry, Cessna is owned by Textron Corporation, which are probably one of the most tightly controlled organizations that we work with in terms of licensing in terms of what they want for every aircraft we sell in terms of what they want in terms of um control um over what we make how we make it um so yeah that factors a lot into it things like compliance testing electronic compliance testing something i wasn't aware of until i really started developing a lot for horizon um crazy things like the i understand a receiver and a transmitter they they emit rf they have to go through electronic compliance and i understand even some big radio brands don't do compliance testing which um you know without going into the weeds there was a very big hobby company that hit some really hefty fines because they didn't comply to the regulations in europe and america I get that. What I didn't get was things like electron, electric retracts. They omit RF or lights. They omit RF. So every one of those components has to go through the same rigorous compliance testing as you would do a receiver or a transmitter. And I know for a fact that the, the other com model companies don't do it. They don't comply. They sort of just swim between the gaps and go ahead and don't do that. We being Horizon... Um, and it's an internal thing, but also a big target. We, we have to go through all of that. And that factors into when we're developing something. Okay, you know, can we make it without licensing? Can we do we have to pay a royalty? Do we have to go through X, Y, Z amounts of compliance testing? So for us, it's not as simple as going, you know what, that's a cool idea. Let's make it. Um, we have those. We, we have those all day, every day amongst our team of let's say eight product developers and another four or five marketing guys and another, let's say three or four execs of so 15 people every day come up with multiple ideas of which a high percentage never come to fruition because of factors to do with being a big organization, you know, the compliance testing, the licensing, the will it sell enough, you know, is that a cool idea or is that a cool idea that will sell enough to justify what we have involved in it financially in terms of compliance testing, development, stocking, product support, advertising, marketing, all of that stuff we have to factor in. So, yeah, it's a lot of stuff that people don't understand. I get it all the time as well. People come up to me and say, why don't you guys make anything cool? Why don't you make anything exciting? And we're like, we try to, um, but we have to be balanced. We have to balance between exciting and cool, profitable marketable sellable in in the mass market so yeah it's it's something that i, I really it still fascinates me i talk about it for hours um particularly when people come up to me at an event and say you guys just make the same stuff all the time we're like look there's a reason why we make what we do we don't just sit there and go you know we want to do the same stuff all the time or we don't want to make a really cool interesting diverse project but 
you know, if it gets to a stage where we go, okay, this is cool, this is amazing, this is diverse, we'd love to make it, but there's a 20% licensing fee or there's eight components that have to go through compliance or this is a very product-centric or uh, polarizing subject matter, say, or appeal in, in, in Germany, say we make a very specific German airplane, doesn't work for us as a global company. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a subject I could talk for hours, as you can probably gather about. Well, uh, speaking of uh, cool products uh, from Horizon and from Hangar 9, uh, one of the latest releases is the um, Ermaki MB339, right? Can you talk a bit about uh, yep, how that happened? How, uh, how did it go from idea to release? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about that one. Um, following on from the, the, the spiel I've just given you about making stuff and the complications and the complexities of making stuff sometimes some swim through the gaps sometimes you can pitch things just correctly at the right time at the right place and uh yeah the mb was one of those um it's no secret you know i, I do i have been involved in the jet scene now from about late 1998-99 and i think it's what a lot of people will know me for um i fly all rc i really do i try and do every aspect, but I guess my most highest profile, well-known segment is the jet world. And when I joined Horizon, um, I, you know, came in thinking a little bit selfishly, a little bit, you know, big-headedly almost that the, the, the products could evolve around me. Learned very quickly that can't, it's not that company. We've, we've, we're in it to make money and make business. And, um, yeah, with that in mind, I was like, I still had this little, burning sensation in the back of my brain that I'd like to get more people doing more jets. I'd worked very closely with a gentleman named Alan Kardash in the UK from about 90, no, about 2000. Um, I developed with him all of the Boomerang series of jets and enjoyed that a lot. Um, enjoyed being involved in getting a lot of people started in jets that wouldn't necessarily be in the jet world. Um, Alan himself was one of those. You know, I remember Alan coming to me and he couldn't fly the jets at the time and I'd run out, of, run out of ideas. We didn't have that much choice in the early 2000s and he went away and banged together the first boomerang out of an old set of Giles 202 wings and, yeah, it started from there. I came with that idea to Horizon saying, look, I've done it. I've worked with this guy. We've taken a brand, a subject that wasn't necessarily accepted within the jet scene, but developed it into a brand that sold better than I think any other jets ever sold. Um, so with that in mind, I'd like to make a jet for Horizon. Everyone assumed I wanted to make some super duper composite high end sport jet, which ultimately I do. But from a business point of view, I wanted to make what I pitched, you know, my first pitch to my first boss at the time was I want to make an everyman jet. I want to make jets accessible to pretty much anyone, anyone that's, you know, invested enough into like a 60 or 90 size warbird or a two meter pattern plane, break down the barriers and give them no excuse why not to you know, go into jets and turbine prices were coming down, retracts were coming, the prices were coming down and we were working with a vendor at the time. Oh, I was working with a vendor at the time on Horizon, uh, sorry, Hangar 9, um, that were making some really interesting stuff. And I took one of their subject matters and I, I booked it out of stock. This is a product that we were distributing at the time. I took it out of stock, assembled it briefly and took it into one of our early 
brand meetings I hang and I brainstorming meetings and I put it on a table and I was like the guy's like what, why is this in here and I said look this factory can make this this at the, at the time was EDF um, but there's no reason why that EDF couldn't be replaced with a turbine and um, started the ball rolling from there went back to the factory and the factory like we've never built a turbine before and I'm like look don't worry you're 90% of the way there with this product with some development in terms of structural um, internal structure structural load bearing so forth um, and some moving around for things like fuel and what have you this could be a turbine airplane so yeah that was 2017 I've been at Horizon for just about two years um, and I got the green light there, and it was it was a very it was a very different company then. We hadn't bought Hobico. We were still in the old building. We hadn't had the merger. Um, I was super lucky with my boss at the time. Was very proactive, um, jet flyer, RC flyer, and he said, "Look, you know, I have faith in you. If if you want to do it, do it." And that's when the ball started rolling. 2017, I got the first sample in, I was looking at my pictures the other day, 2018, early, I think January 2018. And um, yeah, it started from there. And the idea was that it would be on the market for 2019. And it just kept hitting roadblocks. The projects like hit roadblock after roadblock. Some internal, some that we had pushed back from those within the company that were like, we don't make turbines, you know, we, we can't support turbines. And that was one of them. We hit COVID, obviously. That was a good two-year um, delay, longer than normal because, uh, longer than our Chinese vendors because COVID hit Vietnam really, really hard. They shut down um, Saigon completely. It was under military curfew at one point. Um, so we were getting nothing out and that project was at that stage was pretty much ready to go to the final rounds and then compliance that's where that's where i found out about compliance testing on electric retracts you know we were we had them made the first 200 or so were made ready to go i was super happy i was super pumped and then a conversation came up and said you compliance tested it right and i was like no it's it's not a bind and fly it's got no electric motor no receiver no lights and they're like no but it's got electric retracts so that delayed it by at least another seven or eight months. So it's been a very long, longer than normal, drawn out process. Super rewarding. Um, it's always it's always fun bringing a new product to market. You know, even if it's like the Ultra Stick behind me, it's a pretty conventional, boring aeroplane. But it's still that release day is fun. The MB339 was like that little bit extra being our first proper turbine. And um, as it worked out, things just fell into place as well. You know, the King Tech deal came up almost last minute, the last two or three months. We um, moved the mountains enough, moved the, 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 the goalposts enough that we could actually offer, offer combos. So, yeah, we ended up with a Horizon jet and uh, a partnership with King Tech where we could combo up and get a lot of people started pretty much with the entire package so yeah it's uh it's been good it seems like a lot of people were really really excited when they saw the original announcement right um i think it, it seems like a pretty big deal for hangar 9 their first yet uh but it also seems to be something pretty exciting for those people looking for that first yet right? i think getting into the jet scene it's always a bit uh, intimidating, partly because high cost, partly because it's a bit different technologies than, than what uh, people are used to, whether it's with electric or gas. 
Um, so I think having, having that coming from Hangar 9, where people are more used to those maybe smaller, more approachable airplanes, uh, puts people a bit at ease. Yeah, I mean, that like I say, every man was always my, my pitch. Um, the reason why I chose the MB339 as well, I've said this a number of times to so a number of people, you look at the shape of a 339, it's uh, familiar, it's it's straightforward, there's nothing funky, there's no swept back or swept forward canard. I mean, I, I say this a lot, if you took the engine out of the middle of a 339 and put a 60-sized electric motor in the front, it would just be your everyday sport aeroplane. Um, and that was a big reason for choosing the 339. Long straight wing, long tail moment arm, decent tail area. It makes a, a good straightforward aeroplane. Doesn't have to be but ugly. You know, if I if I say anything from my time as developing boomerangs, um, Alan and I always used to sort of clash. And I'd like, can we not make something that looks more pretty, more conventional? But he was very much of a mindset of uh, function rather than form. Um, the vendor we chose meant that we could get the price point below $2,000 for the airplane. So that was important for me. Um, construction, no fancy composites, no, you know, exotic materials. So it's stuff that people were used to. I mean, literally my, my first scope was, I remember I just finished the ultra stick 30 CC, um, design. And, um, I was like, how do I make this airplane? turbine capable but still um appealing enough for those that want to get into jets visually you know that it's not heinously ugly so yeah and then the big thing i think has uh really sort of not surprised me but it clicks into place is the familiarity of people going with a big company you know people like to go okay I trust horizon i know there's a level of support with horizon so i'm not just out on my own you know it's not going to come like a lot of airplanes do a box with no manual. There's going to be you know, product support. There's going to be a hundred page manual in three different languages. There's going to be spare parts and so forth. So yeah, I think it all just fell into place for that airplane. And I'm super happy to be a small part of it. Yeah. And I think the other, the other big part of it probably is affordability, right? Within, within the expensive prices that pretty much every jet has, uh, I believe, um, the price of the whole kit, uh, even if you go for the one that comes with servos with a turbine, is relatively contained, uh, right? My analogy that I use quite often as well, because obviously talking about this airplane a lot, but um, in the same day that we released the MB339 combo, I bought a replacement undercarriage for one of my scale jets. And the undercarriage for this scale jet was more expensive than the complete MB339 package. Plane, undercarriage, turbine, receiver, battery, everything. So, yeah, it's a very, very good price point. I'm never going to use the word cheap because it's not inexpensive. I use um, relatively good ROI of return on investment is something that I use quite often, you know, for... For sub four thousand dollars, you get a lot for your money. I'm never going to be flippant and say, "Oh, that's you know, that's cheap." Um, but in jet terms, it's incredibly well priced. This is obviously a great option for somebody that is just trying to get into jets as their first jet. Um, as somebody that has flown all kinds of jets by now, uh, how do you feel about this jet for somebody that has experience and is just looking for? Anyone affordable, simpler, yet to add to their to their hunger? How, how, how does it fit on that? 
it's so weird because I'm so close to the project and I'm so saturated in the project. It still sort of humbles me and surprises me when I see people who aren't raw beginners. Um, for example, they're, they're just starting to filter now to events where I see them flying and I see them on Facebook and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's my baby, so I, I keep a close eye on it. And, um, yeah, it's been super, super cool watching people who I think, why, why do you have one? You know, you've got like a... $25,000 Compath MiG-17 there and you're flying my little $1,600 MB339 and engaging with those people, it is, you know, they say look, it's straightforward, it's simple, it's low risk, it's a pure flying aeroplane, you know I'm so easy to I have a saying at work, never ask a product developer how his aeroplane flies, it's like everybody's baby's beautiful, nobody comes out and says, you know, my baby's ugly so, um I'm the same with airplanes. I try and stay humble and go, okay, you know, why? Why do you like it? And they're like, yeah, you know, it's a straightforward airplane that I can throw in the car. I've got low investment in. It's got a very, very wide flight envelope. I mean, it's never going to set the world on fire top end speed wise, but slow end speed is incredible. It's pattern-esque in the layout it's conventional layout so it you know aerobats very well smoothly it's pretty pure no mixing and so forth so yeah i mean it's one of those planes that you can throw in the car and fly every day and at the time when i first scoped it another one of the things that i pitched to my bosses to my you know teammates was i saw at the time it was right when the first generation of foam turbine airplanes were hitting the market and I had one I, I got one for myself and um, played with it and I could see very quickly that as great as they were as great as they are the longevity wasn't there you know the, the, the foam and kerosene or diesel thing was never going to be a, a, a good thing for longevity and I saw people having these turbines you know the expensive the core item and what were they going to do with it thereafter? And I'm seeing that now. You know, two people just today that I spoke to who have taken turbines out of their foam aeroplanes, they say, this is my replacement for my X, Y, or Z foam aeroplane that I just used to throw in the car. And, you know, the days that it was crosswind or the days that I was flying at my short grass strip, I take the 339 out now. So, yeah, that's been uh, interesting to watch that. Um, switching topics a little bit. Are you still managing the Horizon Hobby Air Team? Yeah, that's my primary role. Um, that's the role that I was actually employed to do. Um, when the job offer came in to move from England to America, um, there was no talk of product development. Um, that was a, another long story, which we can get into if you want, but just focusing on the team stuff. Yeah, team is what I was employed to do, what I came here to do, and... It's hard to say it's my primary passion. It should be my primary passion. They're about level at the moment, um, especially now that I'm in like my second or third year full-time managing the team. It's sort of steadied out now, and I've got my core nucleus team together who are, I wouldn't say running themselves, but they're, they're, they're pretty stable. And, um, yeah, that takes up about 60% of my, 70% of my time. Um, can you talk a bit about what it actually means to be a team pilot? I think that, People tend to have a lot of misconceptions about this kind of stuff, about the sponsorships. Uh, I would love to, to hear your thoughts about what makes a good team pilot. What, what, you know, what, what's the, what does a sponsorship look like on, on both ends of the spectrum? I think, I think people just think of sponsorships as, oh, I fly this thing and I just get free stuff. Uh, and I know there's much more to that. Um, can, you, can you speak to that? 
Sure, of course. Um, so, what's there? So many different layers that that question and the answers. Um, so, there's different layers. There's actual different stages of sponsorship. Um, I have right now one, two, three, four levels of level one, which um, are, are primo pilots are high-profile pilots, and this comes from the car world. We have also um, a surface team. To put that into perspective, the air team is about 10% the size of the surface team. So we have 125 air team, which is encapsulated all air. Uh, I manage now, obviously, fixed wing, helicopter, no longer FPV, but the fixed wing and heli guys are about 125. Surface is over 1,000. We have over 1,000 uh, car boats team guys predominantly car um, and they have a tiered structure and level one so the very highest level of sponsorship is level 1a and then b and then c and then d and then we go to level two which is the um, level where we are offering a hefty discount say to represent horizon and the brands um, so yeah depending where you're at depending what i see your value at is where you'll come in and join most people uh, will join at level two, which is the discounted level. And I, you know, obviously, I speak to every uh, team guy that I, I take on, and every team guy that is on the levels. We have a private chat group, we have emails, and so forth. And I explain to them: we start at level two. You'll get very, very good discount, a very um, attractive discount on anything you buy within the brands. Um, and then, depending on your return is where you will settle in the, the tiers. And most pilots are level two. Most pilots are happy at level two. Um, some of those that will go and put in a lot of extra work, a lot of give a lot of extra return, will move up to the level ones. And in terms of work and returns, they can be different for each pilot. Um, some pilots obviously have the profile. Some pilots have the, the, the stage name, if you like, or the prowess or the presence or the acknowledgement within the hobby that they do so much at events and they are you know really really gifted pilots that that will draw a lot of attention other pilots other team guys and um, we'll do a lot behind the scenes who aren't necessarily the highest profile pilots but they'll do a lot of event reports they'll do a lot of customer support they'll do a lot of beta testing um, i have level one pilots who I imagine a lot of your listeners um, have never even heard of, but they're still level one pilots because behind the scenes they're doing tons of support. You know, they're giving me loads of content. They're out at events every weekend, and those events, you know, can range from the international events that say the likes of Jace or myself will do, right down to club level. To me, I class them all as events. My goal, whenever I get a new team member, is. What's involved in being a team member? What do I expect or what do I hope for? And primary for me is always the same. It's the promotion of the hobby. Hobby first. Because to me, if you promote the hobby and you promote the hobby really well, the promotion of Horizon will then follow. Because, you know, it's obvious. You're, you're dressed in the team attire. You're, you're holding a Spectrum radio. You're flying a Hangar 9 airplane whilst, you know, using, a, say, a DLE engine, so forth, all of our brands. That will come. To me, I want people, my team guys, to be promoting the hobby first. And that's what I've got. I've got a bunch of team guys who aren't necessarily superstars um, in a conventional YouTube or Facebook or magazine way, but they're superstars to me because every weekend I see them at a field doing buddy box training, or every weekend they're hosting an event, or every weekend they're organizing event donations for us to support an event that isn't necessarily getting the press or the, 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 the coverage. 
but it's promoting the hobby so yeah it's it's a fun really fun part of my job very rewarding um, demanding it's like a it's 125 egos of which I'm one I get it you know we're out there we're egotistical creatures we're we're flying in front of crowds we're flying in front of even you know small club events we're doing it because we love showing off um, so managing that 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 many um, egos can be a challenge at times um, but most of the time with the team that I've got right now it's very very easy um, I'm always humbled always you know sort of flattered when people come to me and say your team guy and it is every week every i've got three emails right now in this screen right here three different emails from hawaii one from arizona and uh, one from an event locally up in indiana which are individuals randoms you know two of them i've never even heard of before reaching out to me and say saying your team guy did this your team guy helped me your team guy helped this event and that's like super super cool part of my job so yeah it's um it's very high reward i really like that idea of his focus on promoting the hobby first and then other things will will just come we were uh speaking before about the 339 and kind of good jets to get started in the jet scene and, and relatively affordable jets uh one of the more sexy jets i've seen you fly lately is the elite Air sports bdx uh it seems like you've been having a lot of fun with that one i've seen you both in europe and here in the us uh can you talk a bit about, about that one yeah i'd love to um talk a lot about the airplane and um it's an interesting airplane to me for a number of reasons um primarily because of how well it flies um secondary because of how polarizing it's been um when it first released it was uh, definitely a shape that not everyone loved and i got that i remember seeing it i, I work um say work i'm friends with um the guys from elite scott Marr had that rendering for the bdx it came from a conversation probably about four or five years ago when i was saying to him look to me it would be cool to make a jet that has some connection to the full-size world but is a metamorphosis or a development or an evolution and um, so when he first had the rendering drawn i i loved it straight away you know i'm a big fan of the the, the bd5 um at that time i'd just flown a friend of mine in california and uh, he bought gono brookman's um big bd5 i'd just flown that and i was like my gosh if you could make this into a sport plane with a few tweaks a few adjustments so yeah i was all over it and um i get it when it was first shown around it was like a 50 50 we use this word at work all the time which is polarizing which basically means one person loves it another person hates it which isn't necessarily the best way to go in terms of volume you know we're, we're always looking for projects at work that tick loads of boxes and one of the boxes is does we'd rather everybody just liked it then 50% of the people loved it and 50% of the people hated it because it means those people that hated it aren't going to buy it you know they, they hate the subject matter if they just like it great you know use the timber timber is a great line you know that, that, that shows that up well that it was a middle of the road vanilla project that sold very very well bdx wasn't that bdx was one of those ones you either love it or you hate it so i was a little bit worried when it first released and um sales represented that it was slow out of the gate um i you know from from the get-go i was probably emotionally biased i loved it um but now it's, it's probably in its third year now um 
it's amazing. I, I, we were joking about it just at this last event, the guys from Elite and I, and uh, I had a chuckle because we had multiple cases where people, when the plane was first released, were like, nope, hate it. You're never seeing me. That's disgusting. It's vile. I hate never seeing one of those in my stable and in my trailer. Here they are. Best, best sport jet I've ever flown. So that's been interesting watching that. From a pilot's point of view, it actually worries me a little bit. It concerns me um, only in the sense that I had a lot of sport jets, you know, more than I can possibly remember. And every time I have a sport jet, I go, yeah, that's the, my favorite sport jet. That's the best sport jet. But there's always something where I go, that could be better. Right now, the place that I'm at right now in terms of my thumbs, my ability, my desires, what I want to do, I can't see what I could evolve the BDX to do better. And that, that concerns me because I'm like, that means I'm stuck with this jet for the rest of my life, you know. So hopefully I've got a few years left flying. I can't see it, Juan. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm on my fourth BDX, fourth or fifth, fifth BDX, um, including the small one, the XS. And every time I come to get a new sport jet, I'm like, yeah, you know, it's time. I, I I'm in a fortunate position that I can buy stuff and fly it and sell it and keep the fleet moving, keep it um, solvent, keep it liquid. I I can't see the next sport jet on my horizon, and uh, simply because the BDX fits what I do so so well. I love it. As I said, I've always loved the shape. Its capability is perfect. It's um, the best blend of speeds, both speeds, top end and low end. You know, when, when people ask me to summarize it, I'm like, it's got the it's got the slow speed handling of the Havoc, which I loved, um, but it always left me wanting about high speed. And it's got the high speed handling of, say, the Picaro, which I loved, but I always threw the Picaro thinking, ah, oh, if only it did the slow speed as well as the Havoc. It's got enough side area that it's really good on knife edge maneuvers, really good on rolling maneuvers. Um, it's strong enough that it will take everything I throw at it. Um, you know, it's not indestructible by any means, but I'm sort of past that time in my life where I want to fly jets right up to the point of they, you know, they blow up. Um, so, yeah, it's I go back to that term ticking boxes. You know, I, I always have these imaginary boxes in my head of what does it do really well? And I've never had one that's ticked so many boxes as the BDX does. It looks really good. I personally am a fan of the of the style. It's pretty unique, but looks really cool. And and they do a really good job with the color schemes too. I think that also helps a lot. Um, it also seems to be a pretty popular plane these days. Uh, I feel like I see a lot of BDXs. Um, maybe the other one that is a bit more popular as a sports jet is the um, Carve, the Rebel, what is the Pro or the Max is the other one that is also pretty pretty popular i think your your son zabi has been flying the rebel max a good amount too right have you gotten a chance to, to try the rebels me yeah yeah from before calf had them i worked with mauro perotti who was the forefather the designer and the uh the inventor of the rebels and um, so yeah i've worked with mauro for a number of years um and done a bunch of Flying on different size Rebels, uh, Zav had the Max until literally last month. I just sold his Max to somebody, a friend of mine. It was their first jet, and he's Zav, my son, is now moving on to the Calf Diablo. Um, but, yeah, they're a very, very capable sport jet. And that's, that was an interesting one, watching Calf take an already established brand, an already established product, which was the Rebels, and just, you know, absolutely 
transform the the numbers that they've sold in and um yeah it's uh testimony to how well they're made i mean Mauro, great designer really really ingenious guy a good eye for form and function but he was a one-man band in italy he couldn't keep up with the demands and production i think you know Mauro would uh, excuse me for saying was a little bit variable um the good and the bad went to calf and they're, they're literally just churning those out at a very consistent level um super high quality they're their factory in thailand puts out some great stuff so yeah it's been it's been it's been very nice watching that brand grow and a lot of people cutting their teeth on them as first jets like i say my son's rebel max actually ended up with a friend of mine um who's down in alabama who is his first jet we did an event uh three four weekends ago where we got him what did we do we did 22 flights on the buddy box um as his first jet and he's now happily flying it as a his first turbine airplane he came from the glider background he had no intention of getting a jet he came to an event up here a glider event and i pitched the idea that it was soon time to let zavi's max go and move on to better things and before we knew it he was a jet guy you made him spend so much more money in the next couple of years it's cheap right to the big high-end gliders one it's uh yeah he, that was one of the feedbacks he had he was like I'm getting more adrenaline, you know, more goosebumps flying this plane than I do my glider, which is, I mean, his big glider's twice what he paid for the Mac. So, yeah. Wow. I did not know that you could go that high with, with gliders. Yeah, scary. Scary, scary. They Even, you know, even me from a jet background, every time I go to price a glider up, I'm like blown away. Um, there's a company, Baldis, uh, also Shamblack. Shamblack is like the, the, the king of gliders. He's got a glider that's like close to $20,000 and a two-year waiting list. I'm like, wow, must be nice. So you've been pretty much all over the world, right? Uh, all kinds of events, big and small. I would like to hear your thoughts about what makes a good event good and what can organizers do to make sure that their events are successful. Um, uh, the reason I ask this is because I've seen some events where the organizers seem to put a lot of effort into getting them going, uh, but they don't quite end up working out. They have like low attendance. They end up kind of like dying over time, whereas others are like huge, huge successes. I think you just came from the Kentucky Jets, uh, I believe. Um, and that seemed to be like a really, really big event. Uh, so I'm kind of curious your thoughts about, about how, uh, yeah, how a good event can get to that point. Yeah, interesting, expansive uh, question. I've done events now for probably in about 20 or so different countries. I tried to work it out the other day and from different levels. You know, I've done events where there have been a handful of pilots, 10 pilots, um, up to, let's say, Kentucky Jets last week was 180 pilots. Florida Jets is regularly 150. I've done, you know, 200-plus pilot events. And, um, yeah, they're all different. I think what makes them good and what makes them bad or what makes them succeed and what makes them fail is um, a lot to do with the people driving them. Um, in fact, mostly to do with the people driving them. It takes a lot of effort. Um, it's never a one-man affair. It's impossible to do it with a singular person. So teamwork is a big part of it. Um, seems like the easiest thing in the world. Just go, you know, we get a bunch of guys together in a field and we'll fly to airplanes. It'll be great. There's so much that goes in behind the scenes. And you know, I'm, I'm the club president now at Eli Club, and uh, we do four events per year. I've 
done flight line organization events from all the way back in the England days. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of balance. You have to be prepared to put a lot of time in pre the event and post the event and during the event. Um, but I guess the secret is knowing, knowing your customer, knowing who your customer is and what they want um, and how you can get that to them um, and, and keeping them happy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, go back to the Eli thing. We have four different events per year. We just did the glider event. We have the jet event coming up. Uh, we have the RC Fest, which is like our broad everything goes event. Um, and each one is different, how we set it up, how we market it and how we support it. So, you know, the glider guys are very self-sufficient. They want to be there. They want to get their money's worth. So they want to be there from dawn till dusk. And from the first day you open the gates to the last day, um, they will be there. The jet guys are, I wouldn't say any more or less maintenance. They just are a little bit more particular, a little bit more fussy what they want in terms of what the runway's like and what the storage is like. And, you know. So, yeah, it's knowing who your customer base is. And then for me is understanding that they're going to have highs and lows. You know, I've been to some events, hey, Kentucky. I was trying to work out. I think I've been there. It's got to be coming up to 20 times consecutively. You know, I've not missed one. I used to come from England and do Kentucky Jets, but it's got to be over 15 years, between 15 and 20. And I've watched it, you know, I've watched it climb, I've watched it dip, I've watched it climb, I've watched it have some amazing years. Like this year was a pretty, really good year. Um, I've watched it have some disastrous years. Like two years ago, it rained for pretty much the entirety of the event. Um, and that's that's when you sort of weed out of how good an event is or how good an organizer or how good the team are that are running that event um, is when they have a bad year. You just sort of have to focus on it and pick up on it and just go, look, it happens. We're not going to let it be the end of the event and actively market it. I mean, they're already marketing Kentucky Jets for 2024 right now. You know, you'll start seeing Facebook stuff coming across all the way through the year, they drip feed it. You know, they, they keep you hooked sort of thing and keep people wanting to come back. The organizer, Lewis Patton, who incidentally is a team guy, um, he has this sort of like boundless energy. Very, very rarely we see Lewis angry or upset or, you know, anything other than positive. And that makes a big difference because, and I know from his you know, track record, is you can't expect to go through an event as the organizer without having dramas every day. Um, and he's always positive. He's always has that, right, let's fix it. Let's get you sorted out. Let's move on. Let's not let it affect the event. I've seen the other way around. Some event organizers sort of get inundated and swamped and negative with it. And once the top guy is negative, once the top guy is down, it filters, you know, the next guy is, then the, then the um, attendees are. And then they start wondering, why am I doing this? You know, why am I spending minimum 100 often thousands and thousands of dollars by the time you've included travel you know uh, bookings in terms of uh, tent space and so forth why am i spending thousands of dollars coming to an event that's got a negative vibe so the vibe is definitely something that makes a big part of it you know we've all been we've all been to the flying field some days where the vibe's a little bit off Vice versa, we've been to the flying field where everything's just clicked, everyone's, you know, having a barbecue or flying until dusk or nighttime, just messing around. And you drive home going, yeah, that was a really cool day. That's what events should be like. You're trying to get that vibe encapsulated and get people hooked to come back and go, that was worthwhile spending my time and money. So, yeah, it's um, from the event organizer down, I'd say. And it starts long before 
the first day of the event. I mean, it's tough. I've not never seen a really successful event that hasn't been marketed a long time before. So yeah, that's a few core things that come to mind when I think about what makes a good event. What are the top three events uh, that you would recommend everybody into modular planes attend at least once? An essential for me is Joan O. Um, it's, yeah, I thought, you know, we were talking about a number of pilots and so forth. Um, we're not even going to touch on that because it's ridiculously high number. Um, the reason why I recommend Joan O is that it's, for me, it's like a the Woodstock of RC. Um, and the funny thing is, I don't always have a great time at Joan O because I'm, I'm working. Um, so I've never been to Joan O as a civilian sort of thing uh, even when i came from england it was with the horizon team so there was an element of work going on despite that i can see the appeal i can see the attraction um, there's no other event like it in the world that i know of and i feel like there's one hiding away somewhere um, and by that i mean it's all encapsulated it's all in one field you know you start at the top with the helicopters you come down a little bit you have the main show line which has got jets and warbirds and you know world war one and all different stuff and then you go to the electric line and then you have control line and then you have the float plane line and then you have the craziness of the 3d line and that runs almost 24 hours for minimum of seven days you know it's you could come in to that gate on say the first monday work bloody hard to see everything you could have a bare minimum of sleep and eat and still not see everything in a week it's yeah that's that's the number one event for me it's in a beautiful part of the u.s just yeah yeah crazy crazy almost too much you know if anything i have to detox after joe noll um and i i only do one or two lines but yeah if i went there as a um civilian and i wanted to see all the different flight lines it'd kill me um but in a good way so that's my number one event um and i like that event because it's it's one of the few events that has all the different the variety um so kentucky jets last week was a great event i love it but it's only jets and you know for me i'm bored of jets after day two or three um i want to try and do something different or see something different And I'll try and reflect that in my event schedule. I'll try never to have two events in the same segment or the category back to back because then I'm really burnt out. So that's what's really cool about Joe Noll is you can go, I'm going to go watch some of the best 3D pilots in the world. And then I'm going to unplug and go and fly a timber on floats on the, 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 the lake sort of thing. So, yeah, that's Joe Noll. Um, jet wise, it's a, it's a toss up for me between Kentucky Jets. And for me, I, I have a big hole and spot in my heart for Ger the jet power event in Germany um, unfortunately not happening this year um, hopefully it will come back that that to me will always hold a special place because that was like the the Joan Ole of jets that was the mecca the pilgrimage um, of where we would get people from all around the world coming to one event to share jets and not only because of the The, the flying of it that was like almost secondary really it was because it was the biggest gathering of vendors you know we've got all of the big jet names together in one place at one time that that was a special special event and then on the completely different flip side of that going back to what i said about diversity and variety i do a glider event um in cumberland 
um, which is on the east coast of America, on the top of a hill. Um, High Point Aviation is the club. Probably only a 50, if best, when I say 40, 50 pilot count event, but it's beautiful. Part of the US is absolutely stunning. It's mountainous. Um, I go there in fall, in autumn, so the, 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 the colors are changing. We're in this... Uh, like I say, elevated position on top of a side of a mountain. We fly some beautiful aeroplanes at a beautiful flying field at a really nice time of year. It's the end of my season, so it's like my calm, come down, chill out, my tranquility zone after a season of stress and heat and, you know, running around with jet noise, battling around. We just go fly gliders for three or four days in one of the prettiest parts of the US that I go to go to and fly pure machines you know I love, I've always loved gliding always will um, so yeah they're my they're my three events of different segments nice sounds like we have a uh, couple of uh, new events to add to, to the bucket list well uh, I'm gonna let you go thank you so much again Ali for taking the time I think this was great no problem thanks for having me if you want to do a follow up I'm as you can probably gather I'm never shy about talking about my hobby my job so yeah if I can if you can ever do it again, just just ask. I'm happy to come up with some interesting questions. Um, I love talking about work. I really, you know, enjoy letting people in to, to stuff that I've experienced, and it's the the nature of the hobby for me. I you know, I have a saying: I have the most useless skill set in the world if I don't share it. So, yeah, if I can share anything, just let me know. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Take care.